From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're discussing three main reasons a person might need an endocrine surgeon with Assistant Professor of Surgery, Dr. Jesse Gutnick. He specializes in endocrine surgery. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start by talking about how you become an endocrine surgeon. After medical school, what happens after medical school? So after medical school, you um, do a residency in general surgery. And general surgery is a specialty that is somewhat broad, but there's a lot of subspecialties uh, that encompass it. And one of them is endocrine surgery. So you spend five years doing your surgical training and then you become board certified in general surgery and you spend an additional one or two years depending on the program and the research that you do um, specializing in endocrine surgery. Okay. What attracted you to endocrine? What did you like about it? Uh, It was always an interest of mine from medical school onwards and part of it is just how... um, well the patients do when they're treated and how dramatic the results can sometimes be with such small organs. So normally you think of a big organ and big effects, but some some of the smallest organs are the endocrine organs, especially the parathyroids. And even though you might be removing something that's as small as a jelly bean, um, patients can have dramatic improvements. And that, from the very beginning, that kind of drew my interest and from there, you kind of become interested in the whole, all the different aspects of it. But that's what initially brought me in. Because I've, I've heard it's, it can be technically difficult, right, surgery, because it's small? Yeah, the endocrine organs are a little bit delicate, um, but they're sort of closer to the outside of the body. And so you can usually, even though they're pretty delicate, um, address them through very small incisions. Right. Well, I want to make sure that we cover the three main types of patients that you care for. So um, thyroid cancer, thyroid nodules, and hyperparathyroidism. Um, So let's start with that one. What is hyperparathyroidism? So to really understand it, you kind of have to back up and ask what a parathyroid gland is. And because most people haven't heard of them. We've heard of thyroid glands, but this is different. Exactly. And all the word parathyroid means is next to the thyroid. And they were given that name because they were initially discovered um, actually in rhinos, and nobody knew what they did. Uh, But they knew they lived right next to the thyroid gland, so they called them the parathyroids. So what they do is they're one of the the components in the way your body manages your calcium levels in your blood and your total body calcium management. So most of your calcium is in your bones, and that's 99 out of 100 calcium molecules in your body or in your bones, and then the rest is everywhere else. Calcium is really important, though, for the function of every cell in your body. So calcium signals your muscles to move. It signals it's important in most of your the processes that all your cells have. So the management of it is very important. It has to be very, very tightly regulated. Um, hyperparathyroidism is when one of these glands, instead of responding to the normal influences of what's going on in your body starts making a little bit too much hormone on its own. And what ends up happening is the the levels in your blood go up. And they only go up a very slight bit. So if you looked at your lab reports with someone that has it, they might be 0.1 or 0.2 above the reference range on the lab slip. But that difference, because calcium is so important to all the cell's functions, 
can have very significant impacts in how patients feel. And over time, it creates very significant health impacts. So would a patient necessarily um, experience symptoms bef before? Would they notice that something's wrong? Yeah, it depends on the patient. So some people are referred just because they um, had a couple of lab slips that their family doctor cut back that said, this calcium's mildly elevated. Let's see if this needs to be taken care of. And those people may have no symptoms at all, but more frequently they have really subtle symptoms that they may not have noticed because it's coming on over time. Things like difficulty concentrating, being a little bit more tired than usual. And I think I, earlier I had mentioned that it's so gratifying seeing how people get better. Often these patients will not think that they have any symptoms, but after surgery they'll say, you know, I actually really did looking back. I was feeling pretty tired and I didn't think that I was but now I'm not. Um, so that would be the most mild form of the disease. Other patients have more severe forms and they can have problems like um, bone fractures. So they had a, a fracture with osteoporosis and that was being worked up and they found out that the bones weren't strong enough because the calcium was being taken out, going into the blood and then being passed out through the urine. As you can imagine, if you're passing the, some of this calcium out from your blood out through your urine, the other thing that often brings people in is they have kidney stones. Both of these can be caused by other um, reasons, but um, often what will happen is either people will have these lab slips for the mild one or they'll have these other things like kidney stones or broken bones. They'll be worked up by whoever's the best person that was initially taking care of that, and then they'll notice that their parathyroids are overactive. Wow. Well, a couple more things I wanted to ask. Um, I'm going to back you up quite a ways. Sure. This was discovered in rhinos first? Well, the, the glands themselves were, were wow. first discovered in rhinos. They're the last organ to be discovered. That's because in humans, they're very, very small, about the size of a grain of rice. In rhinos, they're normally about the size of a jelly bean. Now, when we end up needing to do surgery for parathyroids, you have four of them next to your thyroid. The key steps in the workup, first of all, is establishing that you do have this and your calcium isn't high for some other reason. The next step is figuring out which of the four is overactive. Most commonly it's one, occasionally two, and rarely all four. And then coming up with a plan to take care of that. Do they get physically bigger if they're hyper? Yeah, they do. They so do. when they're normal, they're about the size of the grain of rice, and they get larger as they um, become more overactive. So usually... When you have, um, most, tip, most commonly, you have one overactive gland. And so that single overactive gland might be the size of a jelly bean or so, but they can have a variety of shapes. Sometimes they'll grow larger all in a circle like a jelly bean. Sometimes they'll just grow longer and they can form some somewhat unusual shapes. Um, less commonly, um, you'll have two or more that are overactive and those will be enlarged as well. Um, but can you feel it? You can't, they're you so can't small feel them. that okay. no, and they're too soft typically. Okay. Um, so there are three tests to figure out which one of these are um, the overactive glands. The first test is in the office. You undergo an ultrasound, and if there's a normal gland, it can't be seen on ultrasound. But if there's in fact an overactive one, about seven times out of ten, you can see it on the ultrasound, and that's actually very helpful because it also helps to plan the operation, so you can do it through a very small incision with using ultrasound guidance. The second test, which also picks up which one's enlarged about seven out of 10 times, is a nuclear medicine test that the radiologists do. And they do a combined 
nuclear medicine test with a CT scan. So the CT scan shows the body structure around it and the nuclear medicine test finds out where it is. So they map that, um, that bright spot onto that CT scan and that also helps with the planning. Most of the time, both of those agree. Sometimes okay. they disagree and sometimes neither one of them shows um, where it is. And so the, really the third test and the one we used for all patients, but is particularly important for those patients who neither one of those tests lights up, is in the operating room, the surgeon looks at all four glands. Oh, you just phys- visualize. You physically find each okay. four. You start with the one, if as most of the time you know which one it's gonna be most likely, you, t- you look at that and remove it. And then you look at the other three to make sure that they're not enlarged. Sometimes one of them can be overactive, but not as overactive. And those other tests don't pick it up. So it's important that you look for all four. So you simply remove the gland that's causing the problem? Exactly. So if you have one that's causing the problem, you simply remove that one. If you have two, the same thing. Very, very rarely, you'll have three or four. And in that case, um, you remove all but one half of one gland. Interesting. Interesting. So once it's gone, um, does, does this problem come back in the other remaining glands if you take the one out? So if you, if there's really two ways to approach the operation, if you take the approach where you look at all four, um, over 10 years, it's a 98% cure rate. Okay. Interesting. Okay. If you take the approach where you only look at the one that lights up on those two studies I talked about, it's about a 94% cure rate. So somewhat lower because you can have, as I had said before, you can have some glands that are enlarged and are over-functioning, but they're less over-functioning than that main one. And so the studies may miss them. And so depending on the approach you take, the cure rates differ, but both are quite high. Good. Okay. Um, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jesse Gutnick, an assistant professor of surgery. Um, I also want to make sure we talk about thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer. Um, how would a person know that they have a thyroid nodule? How would that come to light? So people notice they have thyroid nodules really one of two ways. Um, and I'll talk about the less common one first. The less common one is someone looks at themselves in the mirror or a family member says, you have a goiter, which is a swelling in your neck in the area of your thyroid. Sometimes they're symmetric, where it's just a general enlargement. Um, sometimes it's just one side and it looks like a lump in the neck. That's a little bit less common nowadays because we have iodine supplementation in our salt. Okay. So if you go back to the early 20th century, um, goiter was a very, very common problem because we, don't, we didn't have enough iodine in our diet. And iodine is the mineral that's used to make thyroid hormone. And the thyroid would um, get enlarged if it didn't have enough of this. Nowadays, that's less common, but you still see it um, more frequently than you might think. Um, more commonly, you someone went in for a physical exam, either with their family doctor or for a woman with their gynecologist, and they appropriately had a screening thyroid exam where the, their doctor felt their thyroid, and they said, hey, you've got a little nodule here. Then they the, get referred to work that up. The nodule doesn't necessarily mean cancer, though, does it? Not necessarily. So it depends on how the nodule feels, um, but you don't really know until it's worked up whether it is a thyroid cancer or if it's a benign nodule. So you have to look at it as, as if it could be. Exactly. And most people that are referred for nodules end up um, being followed for a little while 
and then it's determined that it's a benign nodule and they're dismissed from follow-up because over time you've been able to figure that out. So really the crux of figuring out whether something is benign or not is obviously how it feels and then most importantly how it looks on ultrasound. There are some nodules that are entirely obviously benign. There are some that are obviously cancerous. And then there's a lot that are in between. For some of the in-between ones, um, a biopsy is needed, and that's also done in the office with a very tiny needle. Um, and that typically gives the answer, is this completely benign and I don't need to worry about it, or is this a thyroid cancer that requires more treatment? And if it is thyroid cancer, um, is surgery the treatment? Surgery is the main treatment for thyroid cancer. Um, the extent of surgery that's needed um, depends on whether there's any thyroid cancer spread or not. For the vast majority of patients today in the modern times, it hasn't spread to any lymph nodes. Um, and so uh, you don't need any lymph nodes removed along with the thyroid. So you take the whole thyroid out? For the very, very, for the typical thyroid cancer, the entire thyroid is removed. For some very, very small ones, and usually these are ones where the thyroid is removed for other reasons, but you see the tiniest of tiny little thyroid cancer in it. Sometimes if you didn't remove the whole thyroid, you don't go back and take the rest, but that's something that's made on an individual basis. And that's basically because our pathologists have become so good nowadays that they're seeing tiny, tiny little cancers that they probably never knew about in the past because they weren't as good at looking for them. But the vast majority, you remove the entire thyroid. And then uh, patients are able to take hormones to supplement whatever the thyroid does provide. They take a supplement for that, right? Exactly. One of the great things about thyroid surgery is it's one of the few organs where we can give you back exactly what that organ made in the form of medication. Um, also, depending on the size and the, and the characteristics of that thyroid cancer under the microscope, some people need some additional treatment. For the people that do need extra treatment, to treat people with um, radioactive iodine, which is actually much more pleasant and easy to deal with than chemotherapy like is traditionally used for other kinds of cancer. And that's what is used for treatment for people that need more than just surgery. Oh, good. Well, thank you. This has been very interesting. My guest has been Assistant Professor of Surgery, Dr. Jesse Gutnick. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate HealthLink on air.